0: Thank you so much, Kara and Nicole, for just singing over us that love. Um, That's very much uh, what today is all about. Uh, I've recently been uh, exploring um, poetry of um, Christians who've gone long before us. Uh, And there's a poem, a prayer, I should say, by Saint Catherine of Siena, uh, a a mystic who I'm quite captivated by recently. And I would like to begin reading um, this prayer that she prays uh, and then I'm going to read it again at the end of our service and see if any part of it jumps out um, new to you. So she prays this and this is our prayer to begin our, our, our exploration of the scriptures. In your nature, eternal Godhead, I shall come to know my nature. And what is my nature, boundless love? It is fire because you are nothing but a fire of love and you have given humankind a share in this nature for by the fire of love you created us. And so with all other people and every created thing, you made them out of love. Oh, ungrateful people, what nature has your God given you? God's very own nature. Are you not ashamed to cut yourself off from such a noble thing through the guilt of deadly sin? O oh, eternal Trinity, my sweet love, you light, give us light, you wisdom, give us wisdom, you supreme strength, strengthen us. Today, eternal God, let our cloud be dissipated that we may perfectly know and follow your truth in truth with a free and simple heart. God, come to our assistance. Amen. <clears throat> we have been exploring um, the theme of embodiment And this is actually the perfect time of year to explore such a thing because we uh, as a church um, celebrated Christmas not long ago. It maybe feels uh, like another time because it's February and the birds are singing. But Christmas time, we celebrate God in the flesh, the incarnation, God in the body. God has a body. God is a body. Uh, and, And that revelation of who God is with a body is really important. And so we're reflecting on that. What does it mean to have a body? What does it mean to be members of the body? Uh, and, and what role does our body play in teaching us about God? And so I'm looking forward to today. I will say, however, and I think it's okay for those in the room, today we're specifically going to talk about um, not the wisdom of the body, as the first sermon in the series was called, but specifically the wisdom of the sexual body. And so I'm going to talk with some words uh, and some maybe stats or uh, terminology that I don't know if, if your 12-year-old or 13-year-old is listening on Zoom, then it just might give you an opportunity for a really great conversation with them after this sermon. Uh, and if you're really afraid, how do I talk about these things with my teenager? The question is how, not when, <laughs> now. But how, if that's a struggle, let's go for coffee. Let's, let's go for a walk, um, me and you or, or the elders and I, and, and we can empower and equip you in that because it's a very important thing to talk about. And so that's just my little bit of my content warning. And then as the previous weeks, on this Tuesday at 7 p.m., you are all invited, even if it's your first time here, uh, to log in to a Zoom meeting at 7 where we're going to discuss what we've been talking about in this series and this sermon. And that's a space where we can go into a bit of a deeper dive on like what this Greek word means and whatnot. And I'm looking forward to that. I deleted it from my sermon though because I wanted to preach for an hour and a half, but I won't do that. We have Tuesday. Okay. So... The wisdom of the body. Our body is a place of encounter. Um, Your body is sensual. And what I mean by sensual is that you, you have sight, touch, hearing, smell, taste. These are your senses, your sensuality. This is how you experience life, how you experience one another, how you experience God. Uh, And your body, when I think of the whole beautiful, vast, diverse complexity of your body, your immune system, your uh, nervous system, your, uh, all the systems, I'm looking at uh, Isaac and Ariana, what other, cardiovascular system, Uh, all of it is working towards two things, your safety, i.e. you living, you staying alive, and your ability to connect, connection, a longing to be safe and a longing to connect. And isn't it interesting what our bodies teach us about God, there is a gospel of our body there's a longing for safety and connection and and God. uh, Meets us in that and so when when we're fighting for safety it's funny it's a paradox hey to be safe and connected. It's a paradox because safety the longing for safety um, requires um, you to guard yourself Uh, boundaries uh, differentiate. You know, sometimes wear a mask, stay back. (laughs) Uh, Safety um, requires us to kind of guard ourselves and differentiate from others. And yet the longing to connection, for connection requires trust, vulnerability, to become a bit exposed, to take risks. And what a beautiful paradox that we're living in that at all times, right? I'm looking at therapist, Driana ariana sorry that's true right in our mind we want safety and we want to connect and that's difficult especially if you've survived trauma your 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 connect instinct can become um you know you focus more on the safety and so this is some of what we'll talk about today so the beautiful thing is that um the reality is that our bodies are sexual uh and i acknowledge that some people are actually not sexual, they're asexual and that's an orientation and that's a beautiful part of how God made that person and that's true for some people. It's not the case to say that all people were created to, for sexual intimacy. Um, it is important, I think, at the beginning of this sermon to, to note that that's not true for all people. Mo- most, the, the the majority of people, yes, but certainly not all. And we bless those people and there's nothing wrong with them in that regard. Um, and we acknowledge that um, Being sexual people and and, and having bodies that are sexual uh, doesn't mean that from the moment you're born until the moment you die, you're a sexual person, right? There's like a bunch of nuance I could add there, but I'm sure you all know what I'm saying. But the reality that your body is sexual and that you are a sexual being um, is true and wholesome and good. And your sexual body can actually teach you a lot about God. Our sexual body, our desire for sexual intimacy, um, behind that is a yearning for connection, a yearning for safety, a yearning to be seen, to be known, to be loved, and to get to risk love. And this absolutely teaches us about God. And so I think this is a beautiful topic that, as a church, now's the time to start talking about better. And so that is because somewhere along this journey, as humans, we've lost the plot. (laughs) Uh, the current teachings in our world, and I'm by current, I mean the last 2,000 years, a little longer, uh, teachings around sex and sexuality have ultimately failed us. We are not okay. Uh, the more I get to journey with people and know people, the more I know that in terms of our sexuality, there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot going on that tells me that we've lost the plot. We've gotten off course. Our world's current approach, um, to sex and sexuality has destroyed people's lives, has, uh, is currently destroying the planet, could I go, could I go that far? Um, the thing in us that wants to just consume and consume and consume and until you're satisfied and fulfilled no matter what, how that affects other people, that's the same reason that our, our, our planet is in a crisis, <clears throat> it is destroying the planet and I would say that Western Christianity has not really engaged the problem yet uh, it hasn't offered much of an alternative yet in fact I would say that most of the teachings that I grew up with and I know my mother and I know my grandmother grew up with has actually just been shaped by the same thing that has shaped sexuality and the teachings about it that is destroying the world right now our imagination has been stunted and extremely limited Uh, And and so I think now is a beautiful time as a church community to talk about it. So there's this spectrum, and it's important I start with this because some people are like really afraid that like we're just on this swinging pendulum. And it's like, oh boy, are we just swinging? No, we talk about the spectrum. On one end of the spectrum in terms of like teachings on sexuality is this really intense desire to control and police, this legalistic like These are like, like if you've ever been to a protest and someone has a big sign and it's like, these are the sins and they start listing the sins. It's like yoga pants, rock and roll music, tarot cards, hippies. And it's like just a list. It's like, there's something in us that's like, we need to know the exact rules. We need someone with authority to come and police our bodies and our use of our bodies. And it's strict and it's based on like fear. But then on the other end is like, if it feels good, do it. Everything is awesome. Indulge, treat yourself. There's a quote from Parks and Rec. Yeah, thanks. <coughs> um, it's like this indulgent licentiousness of like it doesn't matter, um, and, and that's a dangerous um, way to live. If you live in a very, if you have a lot of privilege, um, because indulge and, and take and consume and do what you want, um, you, you have to do that often um, at the expense of vulnerable people, and that's not that's not gonna <laughs> that's not gonna lend to the flourishing of our world. So. Culturally, I would say, uh, we here in the West are shaped by a hyper-individualism, that you, the individual, and your needs is kind of all that matters. And within that, we're shaped by consumerism, that uh, just consume and take and, you know, until you find personal fulfillment. And so individualism, consumerism, sprinkle in some capitalism, uh, we get thinking that the individual should do whatever feels good, regardless of who it hurts or how it hurts. Uh, and then if that's our world, guess where religion comes in? Uh, it just comes in trying to contain the bad, evil, harmful, sinful desires. And it's just like, well, we need to contain this. And that that's it. Um, but we, I- I- if we as a church, we, I mean, awaken. <clears throat> I don't know what other churches are doing, but this, this church community, if we had awaken could muster up the courage to make space for an honest, de-stigmatized dialogue about the longing for sexual intimacy I believe this would contribute meaningfully to the crisis of decimated ecosystems global climate change and the catastrophic division and isolation that our world is experiencing right now so it is the first Sunday in February if any of you grew up in the church like me and you were in youth group you know what that means February is love month that's when the youth pastor gives the sex talk in February every year and I'm like wow here we are February 6th and this is our sermon so here's a bit of my experience and I'm gonna just say this as, as my own personal experience knowing full well that I hope most of you I will see you nodding your head because that was mostly your experience too um, I'm I, I think it was I I won't say I hope it was I hope it wasn't but it probably was um, this is what we were taught when we were teenagers teenagers who wanted to talk about sex but not in the youth group context. This is what we were taught. Don't have sex until you're married. Uh, And then mostly that was it. And within that was like, because your virginity, and this was mostly to the girls, is your most precious gift. And you need to protect it at all costs. Because once you don't have that anymore, we don't care about you anymore. The media, marketing doesn't care about you anymore. It's your most precious thing. So don't mess it up. Uh, And then, We were taught, um, maybe when I was a little older, I'm thinking college and career, you know, you're kind of dating, thinking about marriage. I was taught things. And I also read a lot of books, especially when I was like dating in my early 20s and really thinking about marriage. I read a lot of books on marriage and relationships. And I read the books by Tim LaHaye and Who Wrote Love and Respect or, oh man, there's a whole bunch of of books that I, I remember reading a bunch. And they all said this, men need sex and that's how God made them. Women don't. Um, women need emotional connection, men need respect, not love, women need love, not respect. Uh, men can't control their sexual urges, so it's a woman's job ultimately to protect him with modesty. Um, and other means. Uh, virginity is your most precious gift, so you have to protect your own virginity, but also protect him from his own uncontrollable urges. It's a dangerous world out there. Uh, and then don't marry someone you just met. Don't get married young date for a long time, get to know each other, build a pretty intense emotional connection, but don't have sex. So as you're dating and as you're connected and as you're like hanging out and those desires are coming up, you've got to wire your brain to not act on those desires under any circumstance. And even if you have to do that for years, and then you get married, poof, your brain will magically be like, this is awesome. I love sex. We should have it all the time. That's what I was taught. And that's what we believe, that if you did it though, God was like this like God would reward you that if you actually did it and you protected your virginity and and you protected uh, your partner's virginity, then God would bless you and your wedding night and every single day for the rest of your life will be nothing but fireworks and ecstasy. Uh, And that's what I was taught. And the more I get to um, do premarital counseling and, and officiate weddings and journey with people, I learned that, like, I don't know anyone yet who got that thing that we all signed up for it did it didn't we didn't get it so and then there's sometimes frustration so um here's also what I learned or or here's what I didn't learn here's what no one ever told me Uh, no one ever told any of my peers I don't know if anyone ever told my 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 mothers and my grandmothers and and the people that were kind of discipling me I don't know if anyone ever told us like what is sex like what actually is it Um, I'm just gonna ask you just in your own imagination when, when someone says sex, what is it? What is the actual thing that people are, are describing when they say sex? And, and the thing that is in your mind, oh, it's, this is sex. When does that begin? What is the exact moment of like, now you're officially, now this is sex. And when does it end? And I bet you we would all have like, oh, that's I don't know, when did it begin? I mean, I, it, when did it end? And like, like, those are things we were never taught. Um, I wasn't taught about human anatomy. And here's the part where I was like, "Should I don't want?" I I emailed a few pastors. I was like, "Do you ever say the names of body parts in sermons?" (laughs) And I was like, "I was like, oh, it'll it'll depend. If any new people who I've never met before come tonight, I won't." And here we are. So, I have to make some decisions. But we're adults. I'm like, okay, Nikayla, you're not a youth pastor anymore. You're an adult. So okay but I was taught that like you know there's there's a penis and there's a vagina and those are the counterparts and they're made for each other and that's God's design and so that that's it but I no one uh, wait wait what I'd like to raise my hand please um I have a question uh that definition of, of anatomy and like sexual counterparts is actually framed by the patriarchy because that's not true um in the womb there's a there's a moment in human development where you have the same parts, whether you're male or female, like regardless of your chromosomes, you have the same parts and then the exact same parts just form into something else. It's not that a boy has a penis and a girl has a vagina. It's that a, a, a boy has a penis and a girl has a clitoris. Those are the parts. And then there's also other parts in your anatomy that are really useful for like having children and birthing children. Um, but I just didn't learn about in, uh, anatomy. I didn't learn about pleasure, I didn't know, I didn't, no one ever said, like, sex was pleasurable. It was just, like, your godly duty, and you have to have children, but no one taught us about what, how, or, you know, what that is. No one really taught us about what intimacy really means. Um, We were just, like, once you get married, then you can have sex, and then don't ever talk about it again. It's private. You're on your own. And I know now. I know because, um, eventually, um, truth floats, and I've seen, um, men and, and women, um, weeping, who've been married for many years, who are like, not okay. And no one also ever really talked about what the Bible says about marriage. I didn't really learn that it's a radically modern concept to just marry someone who's your age that you love. That's new. (laughs) That's a new idea. The Bible, authors of the Bible, didn't know that that would ever be a thing. Um, it was men in their 50s marrying girls who were 14, and after they've died giving birth to baby number 12, then he gets a new 15-year-old, and that—that's largely how the world worked. Like, we didn't learn about like we were just like biblical marriage means this, and I thought the scripture was clear about it, and and the more I studied the scripture in my several degrees, I learned it's not as simple as we, you know, were told. And so in sum, it was this: as long as a girl marries a boy and they're both virgins uh, before then, then they're good and anything outside of that is bad and we don't talk about it so like thumbs up or down is that kind of what you learned as a teen kind of I see some thumbs yes great Um, so here's some Christian myths Um, i I've read a few books uh, lots on this topic and what my my one one of my favorite books that I recommend to a lot of people uh, oh there's a few but I just I'm gonna show you some research a woman named Sheila Gregor is a Christian sociologist who did this huge survey over several years, she interviewed 20,000 um, evangelical women uh, who I'd identified, I should say, as like straight and cisgendered uh, and she asked them. There's like 130 questions on this thing and she interviewed them and she's put together this book called The Great Sex Rescue by Sheila Gregor. And um, she shows that um, we're not OK. And so one of the, the myths that she she shows that we were taught in like a lot of the Christian dating and marriage books. Here's a few. Here's a slide. This is one, yeah, this one is n- not as awkward as the next one. Okay, Christian myths. Um, men are more visually stimulated than women. Research has shown a thousand million times that that is not true. It's not true. There might be general, like in a relationship, like there might be uh, some relationships where that is true, but the idea that biologically this is how God wired us for men are visual and women aren't, is not true. So let's stop saying it, starting now. Second myth, men have a higher libido and more of a need for sexual intimacy than women. Not true. In some relationships, it is true, but the idea that, like, that's how God wired us and that's what is exactly how God made us is, like, I would want to talk to God about that. (laughs) But why, though? Why wouldn't you wire women to have just as high of a, why? That can't be God's design, even if it is something that is common for people. Um, the idea that, uh, virginity is a biological reality, I thought that something would actually change about my body if I were to ever have sex, and then that, that, my body would kind of be garbage and not good for anyone anymore, because I, you know, like, I thought it was like a a glass slipper, and once it broke, (laughs) I didn't know that actually biologically, physically, physically in your body, absolutely nothing changes. Um, whether you're 80 years old or 15 years old, biologically, um, experiencing sexual intimacy doesn't necessarily change your body Um, you could have scar tissue from birth or trauma um, and there are reasons why your body might like biologically change but it has nothing to do with um, sex as you had imagined what that means a moment ago Um, the idea that people who wait until marriage to have sex are rewarded with better sex lives statistically speaking not true Uh, it's really hard to learn intimacy with a partner it takes a lifetime, and so it's not true that it's like God rewarded you for that. Um, and I know this, and I can say this. I was David's first kiss. <laughs> That's a pretty big claim. like I feel very proud of that. I was his, I was his first kiss, and he's gorgeous. Like I, I was really confused by that at 18. <laughs> um, I was like, but why? <laughs> um, and and I and I can also say this because here we are. I wasn't um, David wasn't my first anything. So based on all of the, I mean he was my first husband. (laughs) 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 He was, truly my first husband. And like fiance even, so that's great. But you know what, based on all the stuff I was taught, you would expect it to be the case that David came into our marriage as a perfect, unwounded, baggage-free human, and I come in totally broken and messed up and it will take years and years and years of therapy and probably like an old priest and a young priest and then I'll be okay. I'm like, this is not youth group, okay, look, <laughs> um, But the truth is, in our marriage, guess what? We just brought different baggage, different wounds, different work, different, different, um, if, you, if you, yeah, it was not that one of us was better than the other. We both had to, a lot of work to do. Um, I was also, um, another myth is that you are not fully human until you are coupled. Or in a relationship, the idea that your partner completes you. When I was a kid, uh, at grandma's Christmas dinners, there was an adult table and a kids table. But guess how the kids get transitioned to the adult table? It's not when you turn 18. You know when it is. Say it. It's when you get married. Yeah. So when my 18-year-old, my 18-year-old sister's at the adults table, and I'm sitting there in like my 20s, like, hmm, this doesn't make sense. But the idea was that we were just waiting for life to start and it doesn't start until you're in a sexual partnership Um, and that that is weird as a Christian because we would say that Jesus is the most fully human being who was not ever coupled in that sense Um, neither was Paul and so that's not true you can experience the full scope of human flourishing and God's dream for your life without being in uh, a partnership you can And then I also was taught, or or another myth is that the Bible clearly teaches that sex is for a man and a woman in marriage. Um, It does not clearly teach that. The Bible is actually somewhat unclear in this matter, and that's a gift to us because it invites us into dialogue. So we'll talk about that a little bit here, but mostly on Tuesday night. So... Hmm, is it the next slide? Yes, now here's the other one, um, this is wild. Here's what the research of Sheila Gregoire um, showed us and how this, these harmful myths affa- affected us. This was of thousands and thousands of, of people interviewed. Um, studies show that 95% of men orgasm, that's the other word, I was like, can I say this in church? And I can and I will and I'm doing it, so. But, n- <laughs> but never again, never again after today, I'll just. Studies show that 95% of men orgasm every time they have penetrative sex, and less than 48% of women orgasm when they have penetrative sex. 79% of women engage sexually with their husbands because they feel they have to. 79%. That is a staggering number. Obligation. It's their duty. You just have to. In 19% of marriages, did you know this? She has the highest sex drive. 19 And in 20% of marriages, um, research shows that it's shared, and these numbers suggest that gender has nothing to do with it. Uh, 22%, that's a huge number, of evangelical women report experiencing pain in sex, Um, and of women who've had children, that number goes up to 27%. That's pain. Um, they say that uh, uh, when for men who aren't able to like perform sexually, like say with erectile dysfunction, they go to the doctor and they get medicine, and it's in the you'll see commercials for it while you're like watching a Disney movie. Like it's just a normal thing in society, and all society's like this is a problem. We need to help these men. But do you know that women experience <laughs> a similar thing? Vagis- v- I can't say it very well sometimes. V- Vagismus. Vaginismus. Vagis- see. S- camaraderie here. Um, I've never seen a commercial for it. I've never seen a pamphlet in the doctor's office. It's like, are you struggling with painful intercourse? It's just like, well, yeah, that's because Eve ate the apple. <laughs> Is that it? That's not okay. But we don't get to talk about it. I guess women are supposed to be in pain. I don't know. Anyway, okay, so, um, and then lastly, Women who believed that sex was an obligation were four times less likely to orgasm and 10 times more likely to report feeling pain. And we were taught that that's how God designed this and that's God's dream of sexual flourishing. So we've wired our brains to fail and then we've passed that on generation to generation to generation. We've wired our brains to fail. If we believe And if you were taught this as a young child, if you believe that a woman's virginity is her most precious gift, and if you also believe that men are not able to control their desire and therefore a woman needs to protect both her own precious gift plus help him control his urges, but you also believe that men have sexual needs and women ought not to cause men to stumble, i.e. don't cause a man to want sex, but accept that he needs sex in order to feel loved, and you also believe that if you don't meet his sexual needs, he will have an affair. This is causes what's called complex trauma <laughs> he can't control himself but if you lose lose this thing that we've taught you is a biological thing your virginity you're now garbage uh, like like this is impossible Th- this is, we're stuck and the whole world's stuck and it's like we're not okay and it's painful and so I, I'm like we need to be renewed what does it say in Romans 12 renew our minds we need a new message and I believe that Some of why we have, um, this is on the next slide, uh, uh, sexuality that's been shaped by empire, that's been shaped or constructed in terms of power. Um, so we, I believe, are, are victims of and survivors of, um, a sexuality that has been constructed in colonialism, where in the West, um, the, the greatest virtues, uh, and, and I look back to where, how the West was won with the plantation economy in the South, Um, The greatest highest virtues you could have and this was for if you were a man um, Possession i.e. how much land do you own how much property you own how much do you possess that became like a standard of like virtue? How much do you control and over how much do you have mastery and this is true even in education? Um, We you can get a master's degree Which goes back to plantation uh, uh, living? Uh, You can get a master's in divinity which is ultra wild mastery possession mastery and control you put that into individualism consumerism and Greek dualities of flesh and spirit mind and body and whatnot and uh, it's a problem so in the in the ancient Greco-Roman world um, the the person the one who had possession control and mastery was called the patra and this is an ancient term um, born of slavery in the Greco-Roman world that refers to a social system of rule formed around the body of the father slash master who is the fount from which flows the life and logic of all social order. And so meeting his needs and keeping him sort of in control is a matter of life and death. So we've, we've been shaped to believe this, that like, this is how a lot of what, how we got into the situation is is this construction of sexuality and of constructions of gender and constructions of masculinity. That if men aren't allowed to show emotion, then it would make sense to say, Men don't need emotional connection, they need sex. When really, they need emotional connection. Um, We all do. And yet, we've been um, constructed a a way of living outside of that. And so, it's a sin. I think Paul's writings, all of Paul's teachings about sexual sin, is a response to this problem. (laughs) If you're listening on the podcast or on Zoom right now, I have a lozenge in my mouth. So... But I'm trying not to cough. It's a sexual sin, Paul says, to objectify and commodify another human being. It's a sexual sin. It's a violation of God's good dream of intimacy if you use somebody for your own personal fulfillment. It's not okay. Even if two people consent to it, even if both people, like, I would like to use you for a moment of pleasure, and I also would like to use you for a moment of pleasure, great, and then you use each other That is outside of God's dream. That is outside of of, um, the gospel. And and true intimacy um, can actually be fully experienced without sex. And it is possible to have sex without intimacy. And I think God's dream and the dream of sexual flourishing that we hear about in the Bible is about intimacy and connection. In Leviticus 18, there's a list of sexual sins. And in it, it's actually a profound text, especially if you read the King James (laughs) they actually get the Hebrew more correct than in more modern day English translations. In Leviticus 18 you have, um, you, and the you is the men in the community, the patrofamilias, you shall not, and it's like, lie with, and then it lists different people in the community. Your mother, your aunt, your stepmother, your niece, your daughter, your stepdaughter, um, your neighbor's wife, like it's a list of like all the people, Um, and it's not like these are people you are not allowed to make love with, it's like, (laughs) these are people you're not allowed to violate even if you think of them as your property. And in that same list, then at the bottom, it's like, and you shall not um, lie with an animal, and you shall not sacrifice your children to other gods. And then in in a lot of English translations, it says, and, and, and a man shall not lie with another man as he would with a woman. And so then people take that, they're like, boom, the scriptures are clear. But interestingly, that text, when you read it through the Hebrew, and you read it in context, seems very much to be about like, even though you technically, legally have the right to sexually use the bodies of all these different people who are in your possession, possession, mastery, control, don't do it. You could. Your, your 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 sister-in-law's husband died at war and she's all there by herself. Technically, it would be socially acceptable for you to claim her as your own and do what you want. But that text in Leviticus is like, don't do it. And so in a culture where a, a woman in an ancient, ancient um, Near Eastern cultures where a woman's virginity is extremely valuable. Um like like if a, if a young if a if, if a girl in your property was um raped, then she doesn't have the same monetary value as before. So protecting their virginity is really important. <clears throat> in that culture, um the sexual abuse of men becomes really common because their virginity isn't as valuable. So here we have the text isn't saying and, you know, being a gay man is wrong. It's saying also don't touch the boys because the Hebrew is you shall not lie with a boy it's not a man which is profound in the ancient world you're not allowed to ever 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 under any circumstances abuse use objectify or commodify another human being no matter what even if it's your own partner you're not allowed to do that and even Paul's teachings on homosexuality i um, I really can't wait on Tuesday to unpack some of these texts but where it says like Uh, The word homosexuality didn't exist in the English language until 1954. Um, It was a term invented in the DSM 1, 2, Diagnostic Manual for uh, Psychologists um, as like a mental illness. And so then English translations of the Bible since 1954 have that word in it. But the word didn't exist before then. Um, And so even the word Paul uses isn't the ancient word that's typically used to explain um, male intimacy with other men. It's a word that Paul made up. It actually has to do with most likely, I should, it's not clear, but most likely, and it makes more sense in the context, it has to do with this. Abusing, violating, taking advantage of someone. Uh, 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 in the ancient world, it was very common to humiliate and shame someone with sexual violence. Um, and men who were in leadership could do that to other men as a way of putting them in their place. And when Paul's referring to homosexuality, that word which the, we invented in the 50s, that's most likely what he's referring to. Don't do it. So I had a, a student come to me, and this happens actually every semester, in my office and they say, "Nikayla, do you think it's a sin to be gay? And I'm like, "Oh, sit down. <laughs> First ask me if I think it's a sin to be straight. And they're like, oh, what? Obviously, oh, this is not a sin to be straight, what? I'm like, ask me. Okay, Nikkela, is it a sin to be straight? There are sinful ways of being straight. There absolutely are sinful ways of being straight. There are. There's even married straight people who are living in sexual sin because of how they're treating each other. Now ask me if it's a sin to be gay. Okay, a sin to be gay. There are sinful ways of being gay. There absolutely are. So like, do you affirm gay marriage? I'm like, I don't affirm most straight marriage. (laughs) I know how hard it is. Don't do it, I say. You're going to hurt each other. You'd be better not to. It's dangerous. It's a slippery slope. (laughs) Stay away. In fact, Paul and Jesus both say, stay away, it's way better if you don't get married. Living outside of God's dream for intimacy is not about who, (laughs) it's about what. And this sin, this sin of taking what you think you're entitled to and what you deserve and saying, um, I have needs or, you know, this feels good for me, so let's just do it. Um, That's the same reason the landfill is full of cheap clothes. Like when I say full, I mean like millions of tons of cheap clothes because it just feels good for a moment and then who cares, throw it away. It's why the forests are being cut down right now at an alarming rate in, in the South America to make room for the cow, cattle industry. It's why the, our, we throw away 50% of the food we buy. It's why the biggest markets in the global economy is human trafficking, weapons, pornography, and drugs to numb the pain. Four biggest markets because we are literally devouring one another living outside of God's dream of intimacy. And so if you are a survivor of some of these toxic teachings or, or worse, a survivor of sexual trauma, if you struggle to imagine experiencing intimacy in a truly beautiful, life-giving, mutually edifying way, it's not your fault. You are not alone. It's not too late. You're not too far gone. If you have survived sexual trauma, no doubt your body probably doesn't feel like home. Your body may at best feel like a meat suit you're trapped in, and at worst, a place of great pain and fear and hypervigilance. Embodiment, however, can be remembered because Hillary McBride says it's your birthright. It is God's good dream for you to be reunited again with your body. And I pray that we as a church in 2022 could link arms around you and give you a safe space to work through that healing and recovery so that you could know that you are safe and you are loved and that you are worthy of connection and intimacy and ultimately communion. Imagine this generation of little ones that we as a community are raising up. Could we link arms and make space for them to explore their desire for intimacy and connection? Because intimacy is about being seen and known. It's about feeling safe and cared for. It's about connection. Intimacy is about surrender, risk. Intimacy is about communion. In Song of Solomon or the song, as it's called in Hebrew, um, what I love about it so much is there's no themes of domination. There's no themes of submission. Never once in that text is she just meeting his needs and then it's like his turn to meet her needs or or whatever. That's not there at all. It's a passionate celebration of the human body there's no shame about what it looks like or tastes like or smells like none of that they're both just presented in this book of the bible as being completely free from that shame he celebrates the mound of pubic hair from her knees to her navel he celebrates it it's amazing she lays naked and calls the winds northeast south and west to send her scent to her lover there's this overwhelming celebration of life and all of its messiness and this freedom from shame. And you know that the, the medieval rabbis called the Song of Songs the most holy book in the entire Bible. Uh, Rabbi Akiba called it the Holy of Holies. And we grew up debating as a church, is it a metaphor for God and his people or is it a celebration of human sexual intimacy? And, and now I'm grateful that more theologians are saying, why not both? Because is not God our lover? At the heart of our faith as Christians is a lover, a table, a banqueting table, a wedding feast. In Luke 5, uh, they say, Jesus, why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Why don't you fast and pray? And Jesus says, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? You cannot. There's a quote, "Um, a book on um, a Eucharist theology of sexuality by uh, uh, Joy Emerson Johnson. Did I write that out wrong? The next slide, please, Sarah, thank you. J. Emerson Johnson says, by making human bodies with their complex physiology and all their various parts and organs, God has planted in each of us a body pathway for encountering divine love. The erotic energy animates the whole of God's creation with the desire for communion. So, I'll explain this. He's saying the communion table, the the experience of communion as a church, is actually, in our liturgy, and our tradition, the most erotic space in the life of the Christian. At the communion table, Jesus proclaims that we are the pearl of great price. We are the lost coin. We are the sheep the shepherd cannot bear to lose. We are the beloved. And the Spirit is working to join us together into one body. The point of marriage and celibacy cannot be to contain sinful desires. Marriage or celibacy, um, people are called to both, is about glorifying of God through holy desires for connection, intimacy, and communion. The communion table is where our longing meets the body of God. Within each of us, each and every one of us. From the moment you're born until the end of your life is a longing an ache a yearning the psalmist writes in psalm 42 as a deer pants for streams of water so my soul pants for you my god a yearning for connection to be seen to be held it's an embodied yearning And at the source of the ache, and I think right now if we paused and you closed your eyes and you said, that ache within you, it might be a very painful ache, I think, for some of you. Be curious about that ache. What's behind it? Where did it come from? Who put it there? That ache, at the source of it, we meet the lover of our soul. The one who made and is always making love. The communion table for us is a place of consummation. And what I mean by consummation, uh, the the word just means um, to complete or to finish what was intended. The body of Christ is consumed by the body of Christ, and we are one, not just with our God, but with one another. Within each of us, there's a longing to connect. And our world's cheap take on sex and sexuality does not affirm and edify our longing to connect. It often wounds us and shuts us down so we can't feel that anymore. And that is the healing work of the Spirit in our midst, is to celebrate and affirm that longing and yearning to connect, to trust, to feel safe and be seen. And so I would argue that Jesus doesn't... uh, the text never says Jesus has sex or has sexual intimacy. And I would say because Jesus is in the business of a far greater intimacy. Um, lastly, actually, there's two more quotes, I'll just read them. The next one, also by J. Emerson Johnson in the book Divine Communion, an Eucharistic Theology of Sexual Intimacy. He says, God makes God's own self vulnerable to the ecstasies and foibles of bodily human intimacy, it's the incarnation, take, eat, Jesus says this is my body given for you. He says this without knowing his offer will be received. What a vulnerable moment to initiate intimacy without knowing if that other will agree. God initiates the moment of self-giving and not in response to any request from God's creatures but instead from God's own desire for intimacy and union with us and indeed the rest of God's creation. Your desire for intimacy can teach you something about God. And should that message that we receive about God impact the way we act out from that desire for intimacy, I think it would be revolutionary. Willie Jennings, Dr. Willie James Jennings, is my favorite theologian right now. A bunch of you tried to read his biggest compendium of work. A few of you succeeded. It was like a PhD. It was it was, it was a lot, but it was beautiful. Um, here's a quote. Also, I, jellyfish seemed like a safe, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Neutral image that's just, I think it was actually just the photo that was part of the slideshow design I chose, so yeah. He writes, these words, because I've used them, intimacy and eroticism, I've used them a couple times tonight, and and he, he unpacks them. He says, these words, intimacy and eroticism, have been so commodified and sexualized that we Christians have turned away from them in fear that they irredeemably signify sexual, big word, antinomianism, which just means lawlessness, moral chaos and sin, or at least the need to police such works and the power they invoke. But intimacy and eroticism speak of our birthright formed in the body of Jesus in the protocols of breaking, sharing, touching, tasting, and seeing the goodness of God. We are erotic souls. No body that is not a soul, no soul that is not a body, no being without touching, no touching without being. This is how God made us, and this teaches us something about our God. The communion table. There's a song we used to sing, and sometimes we sing, where you say, he brought me to his banqueting table, and the banner over me is love. That is Jesus at the table. Take and eat. My body for your body. It's a place of belonging. It's a place of embodiment, and it's a place of intimacy. And so we take communion um, as a church every single Sunday. I'm so grateful for that. It's part of our liturgy every Sunday. And traditionally, before COVID, there was a loaf of bread and a glass of juice, and we came up, and you... Someone said, this is the body of Christ for you and this is the blood of Christ for you. And then you took their place and gave it to the next person. So you always received and you gave. And there was this exchange and it's beautiful. And I long for when that it's safe to return to that day. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to pray and we're going to go into communion um, and we'll do it a bit differently where every individual gets a cup and a, a juice and cracker, which isn't our dream, but it's the safest way right now. And those of you on Zoom, please also partake with us. Um, But before I pray, I'd like to read for you one final time the poem, The Prayer by St. Catherine of Siena, a mystic who lived her life in celibacy. And yet, if you ever read any of her poems and prayers, you could not deny that she and other mystics, John of the Cross, uh, Teresa of Avila, were very much erotic souls who knew the lover of their souls. St. Catherine writes, or prays, in your nature, eternal Godhead, I shall come to know my nature. And what is my nature, boundless love? It is fire, because you are nothing but a fire of love, and you have given humankind a share in this nature. For by the fire of love you created us, and so with all other people and every created thing you made them out of love. O ungrateful people, what nature has your God given you? God's very own nature. Are you not ashamed to cut yourself off from such a noble thing through the guilt of deadly sin? O eternal Trinity, my sweet love, you light give us light, you wisdom give us wisdom, you supreme strength strengthen us. Today, eternal God, let our cloud be dissipated so that we may perfectly know and follow your truth. In truth, with a free and simple heart, God come to our assistance. Amen. Let me also pray for us, and then I'll invite you. You can come forward and take um, a cracker, in, uh, the elements. On the far right here, it's gluten-free crackers. So, if at the end you come up and you don't need gluten-free, but that's all that left, take it. It's great. Um, and then take it back to your seat, and then we'll partake uh, in this uh, beautiful foretaste of that great banquet together. But let me uh, pray. Oh. Lover of our souls, shape our imagination according to your love. I ask that you would shape us as a church to respond to your embodied, intimate love in a way that would bring deep healing to the wounds of this world. We ask that you would give us a space to feel safe, that we might journey towards recovery, recovering embodiment. We thank you, God, that you have a body. That you have come to redeem all things and heal all things. And I thank you that within each of us, there is a longing for communion. And I trust that the longing will be fulfilled in your great kingdom. And that each of us will be seen and cared for and loved, and we will know that our God is a loving God. And so, great lover of your beloved, we thank you for the cross, for breaking the powers of death that would claim us. And we thank you for your church, for breathing your spirit into this new creation and help, uh, uh, causing us to come alive anew, like a baby in your world. Help us to cry out for help again to trust that there is one who loves us again. And may this message of love flow not just to us, but through us into this neighborhood. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.